Welcome to Game of Stones, everybody. I am Sean Graham, Scott, alongside, as always, hello, Scott. Sean, uh, what's cracking? You know, eggs. Things, eggs uh, is things what's cracking. Oh, geez. Have, have you become a, uh, a what's cracking, get cracking sponsor person? Hey, if they want to throw a, a few shekels my way, I won't say no. But <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I thought I'd try a joke. I don't know if it worked. I'm I'm good with it. I like it. Okay. Uh, if you don't try, uh, you don't succeed, right? There you go. <laughs> so uh, we are back last week, of course. We talked about the curling schedules for teams. Uh, and, and this week we want to talk about something uh, that has been, uh, I think, front and center, but perhaps not as front and center uh, as it could be in the world of curling as we get into a new season. That is, of course, the diversity and inclusion initiatives that are taking place or have been put in place across the sport. Uh, The sport does have some wonderful leaders in this category, and we were lucky enough to be joined by Sabina Islam, who has uh, participated in the Curling Canada events. Uh, She was part of the symposium that took place in the spring. Uh, She has been somebody who has been a leader on this issue from Kingston, Ontario. And uh, Scott, uh, you had the chance to first meet Sabina at the Briar in Kingston back uh, in the before times, Uh, the last event really that uh, took place before the pandemic. Yeah, Sabina was uh, volunteering at the Briar there and was just awesome uh, to talk to really helpful, just made made me feel very comfortable being at the event. So big thanks to her for that and big, uh, big shout out. I'm excited to hear, uh, hear this talk. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, Scott could not join us. Uh, scheduling conflicts uh, prevented that. Uh, so I honestly, Scott, I'll tell you, I wasn't going to complain. I, I got an hour uh, with Savina. Uh, it was good. I got to ask and talk about the things uh, that I was interested in. So, you know, I'm never going to complain uh, to have a chance to talk to somebody uh, like Sabina, who's uh, so uh, passionate uh, and, and great on these on these issues. So uh, let's get right in to that chat with Sabina Islam. All right. And Sabina Islam joins me now from Kingston. Sabina, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, putting up with my poor scheduling. So uh, we're, we're excited that <laughs> you're here. Uh, so uh, let, let's just get a little bit of a, a background on you for anybody who uh, hasn't had the pleasure to meet you or, or read some of the, uh, your things that you've put out uh, through Curling Canada and through the United We Curl project. Uh, what is your background as it relates to curling and how long have you been involved in the sport? So I grew up in a small town called Ignace in Northwestern Ontario. Um, that's where I learned how to curl. There weren't a lot of sports to play there. So athletic people played them all and one of them was curling. <laughs> um, so I've uh, loved the game since then. Um, back then, like we didn't have a, a very, like a little rocker program or anything. You learned as part of the school in grade seven. So I curled um, throughout uh, intermediate school and high school. 
and university took a little break and then folks on school, you know, played a little wreck. And then after um, we had our second child, I think my husband was like, uh, you need to get out of the house and uh, <laughs> do, do something again. Maybe you need to get back into curling. So um, I joined um, Cataract Golf and Country Club, um, I think in 2003. And at the same time, my our older son, um, Bilal, he was four at the time and he just loved the game from like, you know, me watching it on TV. He had his little like dollar shirt brooms and um, balls and stuff. He would, uh, he would be pretending to curl. So I actually, um, the junior program here at that time started at five and I sort of begged to have him be in the program at four because he was such an enthusiast and the person who was running at the time said, sure, he can come in as long as you're on the ice with him. So <laughs> from the time he was four, to uh, basically that's how I got into um, a more coaching. So I, like, I still curled and stuff myself and, you know, some minor competitive <laughs> stuff. At, uh, yeah, but then I, I really, I got into, you know, the, the, I ran the youth program for years at Cataraque. I started when my son started competitively curling, I, you know, did my coaching uh, training with my younger son's team. I'm still coach. They're both curling together this year, actually. So I'm coaching them both. So coaching since, and, you know, on the ice with kids since uh, about 2003. Okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good run uh, on, the, on that side <laughs> of things. Uh, and, and and the kids too, they, they're, they're at a pretty competitive level, right? Like they're, they're playing at a, a pretty high level at this point. Yeah. So they were, I mean, you know, at uh, provincial uh, type level um, for, for both the boys, you know, their cohort was actually quite uh, you know there were a lot of kids curling when especially my older son was curling so their cohort was is quite competitive especially in Ontario quite a uh, competitive sport uh, there aren't as many like before we had to like you know sign up the day the the spiel um uh, opened otherwise you couldn't get in so there's a lot less kids curling now but um both the boys have had some successes they've both been to Ontario winter games full on mixed doubles a couple times come run in um four person and you know they're um yeah, had some other provincial opportunities, but never quite cracked that cracked that ceiling to get to a national. <laughs> well, there's still time, you know. They're, they're, they're hoping for the Briar now. Yeah, they're still, yeah, they still have that uh, that opportunity. Uh, you know, Mike McEwen coming to the province might uh, temporarily uh, make that a little I know. harder. But they're you know, messing things up. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but they have that. But happy, that, happy for John Buke. He's he's a local yes, guy. Happy for him that he's on that team. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so so you obviously do have this uh, this uh, strong and lengthy background in the sport. And one of the things that has come out recently uh, with Curling Canada with their diversity and uh, equity and their their inclusion policies. How did you start to get involved with that and with the United We Curl group? So a lot of this um, interest, I guess you would say, from, you know, the uh, Curling Canada or the different pr um, provincial sport organizations came after, um, you know, the, the turning point was sort of the murder of George Floyd. And I think a lot of people then um, sort of took notice. And even though, you know, we've been here all along, <laughs> but uh, and there have been issues all along. Um, but I think people organizationally, um, realize that, hey, maybe we need to actually address this and, and look at how we can become more inclusive or, and more diverse. So um, Al Cameron from Curling Canada reached out and he and Catherine Henderson were doing um, 
interviews with um, people from different marginalized communities just to sort of get, I think, uh, sort of a state of the union type thing, like trying to find out where things are right now, what some of our experiences have been in the sport in that regard, like um, being a, you know, a racialized person um, in the sport. So we had um, those one-on-one conversations, then the group sort of got together and we had um, several meetings uh, just sort of, you know, Curl and Canada sort of had a vision of, you know, w- what they wanted to, to do and sort of make some progress. So we had a few meetings about that. Curl and Canada did develop a diversity inclusion toolkit, which is available on their website. Um, so we did read through that and give some feedback. So that was good that, you know, so positives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good that, you know, Curl and Canada was looking into it uh, and, you know, realized that there was there was a gap. And I realized change takes time. <laughs> but uh, I also feel like, you know, there's a little hesitancy to take the, the, the next step sometimes. And so that, that group hasn't really met. I'm not sure if we've officially been disbanded or um, what exactly the status is of the group, but we haven't met in quite some time. And, you know, the last the last meeting in particular that we had, I think I was probably hyper emotional <laughs> at that meeting because it was in June of 2021, um, right after, I think it was like a week or two after um, the murders in London and the family murder in London actually happened to be uh, family members of ours. So I was like hyper just emotional in general. And that, that meeting, you know, when I sometimes look at, diversity inclusion things throughout my life. It's been like, you know, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to have. It's, you know, it's important. It's important for society, not just for curling. But in the last few years, and especially last year, it's become a health and safety issue almost, right? So where I'm sort of looking at is, you know, yes, it's important to get curling more diverse for to save the sport and, you know, the business case and all that. But from a racialized or marginalized person, and especially like I'm speaking just as like a Muslim hijabi woman right now, I need more active allies in the world. So I feel safe walking out on the street. And if we can do that through the curling community, that's great, right? Like if that's something we can start off with, because we have curling as that instant bond that we we have something in common and then from there we can learn about each other and our you know what makes us tick and and realize that you know yeah there might be some differences but there's a whole lot of other similarities you know that that is what i need and from that last meeting at at with curling canada i believe people's intentions are in the right place i just didn't feel like there was enough action being taken and when i I believe I specifically asked at that last meeting, you know, would they would they hire a part even a part time diversity, equity, inclusion um, lead at Curling Canada, like someone that the clubs or the member associations could could go to for support in driving this? Because it's one thing to put out a toolkit, but it's another thing to have somebody like, hey, I got a question mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, that was basically, you know, we don't have money for that. That's not that's not in the plan right now. So like that really that really got me. Um, and I know there were other people on that call who were very, like, I guess frustrated would be the appropriate word to use. So sort of in parallel to all this, um, Erin Flowers and um, her group at uh, Goldline were working on the Broom Initiative. So Erin um, took the lead after, again, what sparked her was the, the, um, the murder of George Floyd. 
and her business, she and her business partners, Andrew Brett and Pete Townsend, they were, you know, basically like all in on, on doing something and doing something in curling. And you probably aware of the, the broom designs by Andrew Paris, Deb Martin and Graydon uh, E. Lewis. And so we started then. So Erin had that working and going on. And so she sort of brought in some of us from the Curling Canada uh, meetings, basically. So she brought in a few of us there, um, particularly people who are racialized and who are participating in the sport. And um, we just, yeah. So the United We Curl groups just sort of grew. And, you know, um, since then, um, you know, we've had uh, different opportunities through um, Rogers uh, and um, Sportsnet and the Grand Slam of Curling to spread the message a little bit more. Um, we've, uh, basically we're trying to fill that gap, right? So if we can, if we can be pe- the ones who, um, curling clubs can come to, or, you know, member associations can come to, to sort of answer some of those questions and, you know, more like how to, how to do things on the ground. That's our ultimate goal. Obviously we're all like unpaid volunteers right now. So, uh, and this will take time cause we want to do it right. Um, so, you know, we, we recently were awarded a partnership with, um, Rogers all in as part of their, um, all in for equity program. And so we have a launch for that, uh, coming in, um, next fall. So we have a lot of uh, programming that we're going to be developing and, and working through over the next year to roll out. And, you know, ultimately it'd be great if we could go into every curling club in Canada and help them with their program. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not practical right away. So we're going to pick some pilot areas and, um, and develop, develop our programming with them. So a lot of it is going to be education and awareness and then some other programming as well. Well, I'm wondering too, cause you mentioned working with curling Canada, the group there, and then obviously the relationship that's been built with the, the grand slam, while also working on the grassroots levels and, and you talk about getting things into uh, the clubs at the rec level. So for you, what is the balance or relationship between those two things? Because for a lot of folks, the curling community that they see is what is on TV, like people who don't necessarily play themselves, uh, what they see as the curling community is on the Grand Slams at Briars or Scotty's. And as we've talked about on the show before, that's not really a representative group of, of Canada. Like when, when I look right. at Canada as I walk down the street, that's not what's represented at the uh, TV events. Whereas at the rec level, in my, in my experience where I live, it's a little more representative, not entirely representative, but a little more. So for you and the group, how do you kind of find a, a way to navigate what I think are two very different spaces from that elite TV level down to the rec level? Yeah, I think, so these are some of the um, questions that came out at the, Curling Canada did have a um, symposium on in May, diversity and inclusion, and um, two, well, they had like their the week-long meetings, but two days were devoted to diversity and inclusion, and several of us from United Curl were um, on panels or presented, and uh, those were questions from a lot of people in that room, and a lot of them were, you know, sent there from their member associations or, or different clubs. So uh, I'm going to sort of just speak to, so uh, back up a little. Um, one thing that Curling Canada did, did do was they awarded grassroots funding grants this year for um, programs, um, for different programs. And part, one of the um, segments of the funding that you could apply for was to uh, for diversity and inclusion uh, programming. 
So through Cataract Way, I applied for um, one of those grants and we did receive one of those grants. It's So it's a two-year grant for um, programming and it has to be for youth because it's from the, um, the lottery type funding. So I will be, you know... <laughs> the first to admit that I didn't do this myself before in terms of active outreach. Like I would mention it to my friends that, you know, Hey, you want to curl? <laughs> Cause <laughs> it's great. And my kids curl and I coach and, you know, it'd be great. But to actually get people in the club, it takes a lot of work because curling is not something that a lot of people whose heritage may be from different parts of the world, it may not be the first sport that they gravitate to. Um, even though curl, like the World Curling Federation, I think has like 65 or 66 member nations now, but it's not always the first sport that people gravitate to. So I think to make people really feel welcome and feel like they'll be safe when they come in, I think, you know, what I did was uh, make connections with, um, or reach out to my connections in the community. And those Connections in the community were from, you know, various ethnic groups. And I think what helped was, so if I reached out to friend a friend and she would say, yeah, um, like when she's talking to her community group, then she can say, yeah, Sabina's running this. I've known Sabina for a long time. Like this is like like legit. Your kids will be safe there. They would, it will be a nice environment for them. So I think having that connection really helped because when I you know, we did the Facebook advertising, we did all this stuff. Um, you know, I did cold emails to all sorts of different groups, you know, zero, basically zero response. I think we got one person because I had, there was a radio interview in town, one person um, signed up because of that. Um, but the majority of people signed up because I reached out to somebody who knew me and trusted me. And that person reached out to people in their communities who the communities trusted. So that relationship building is really key. And as a sporting, as a sport, I don't think we do a great job with that right now. So, you know, again, people just uh, will throw up the, the Facebook ads and, and hope someone comes in. You can't just hope somebody's yeah. going to come in, um, right? Like that'll work for a certain segment of the population. It won't work for an, another segment of the population, right? So I think clubs need to club centers the cold word club i'm trying to avoid yeah, using yeah. but we still use it so people need to to really focus on their relationship building with communities there's different clubs in different communities and people from that community like there's very you know diverse ethnic communities and a lot of times people who live like around the block from the club will never set foot in that club yeah. maybe because they weren't actually invited to come in right so it's one thing to post an ad or do like something on social media. It's another thing to actually go to somebody's community center, go to somebody's. And I know with COVID it was hard. And so that's why I did a lot of over the phone, but um, like go to a mosque or a Gurdwara or a cultural center and say, Hey, we've got this programming for, um, for kids. And like through the grant, it was free. So, mm. you know, the financial barrier wasn't even there. Sometimes there was some transportation sometimes and other barriers. So, so definitely relationship building is, is important. I think people are a little afraid of where to start. And I think that was some stuff that came out of the, um, some of the questions that came out of the, uh, at the symposium is people are afraid to make a mistake, right? They're afraid to, to do or say something wrong that's going to offend somebody. And I appreciate that people are actually consciously thinking about that, but we're human, 
right? And we're, if your intentions are good and you're doing a little bit of legwork ahead of time. So don't just like straight up say, we're going to go into the, like, I'm just going to use my community as a, an example. We're just going to go to the, to the mosque in um, Kingston and just like invite a bunch of people in without taking a look at your environment first and saying, okay, if I have like 30 Muslim kids come into my curling club, what in my curling club is going to make them feel comfortable and like they belong and that, that they're truly welcome here? And what's going to like scare them or tell them, um, even it's not to their face, but subconsciously or th- overtly through, um, sorry, in, inadvertently through uh, like our menu or the um, different things that we have that they're not truly welcome, right? And especially when you're dealing with kids, like, Adults will sort of deal with a lot of the crap just because we're used to we're used to that, right? We're used to being in not that it's right, <laughs> but we're used to navigating the world as the other in North America anyway. <laughs> in, in different places in the world, I'm not the other. I'm the <laughs> the, the in crowd. Um, but in North America, so in Canada, we're used to that navigation. But for our kids, a lot of adults will, you know, take that step back and because you want your kids to be happy, you want your kids to be safe, you want your kids to be in a comfortable, welcoming environment. So before we do that outreach to the community, or maybe in parallel to that, you know, first you do outreach to the community and just say, hey, we're thinking of doing this. Maybe if you want to come to Cataraqui and sort of take a look at our space and sort of like, tell me how you feel and how you think this would work for your community. And again, if I bring in one person from the mosque, they're going to give me like their perspective. So it may not be, but at least you, at least you've tried, at least you've gotten some idea of of what people may be considering. Right. Um, And then look at your staff. So at Cataraqui, because we like, you know, it's probably a larger staff because it's a golf and country club than most curling clubs, but still, provide some sort of cultural competency training or cultural safety training to your, to your staff to start or some unconscious bias training. Um, you know, and that, you know, we do like the health and safety committee. We do all that, right. We, we, we are concerned about that. So going back to what I said before, like for me, it may not be that physically somebody's going to do something to me, um, that will cause a physical wound. But for me, my health and safety is also my mental well-being. So if I'm going to be, um, treated in such a way that, uh, my, (laughs) my mental health is, uh, is impacted, that's not right. And, and that's not somewhere where I'm going to want to go back. So making sure that we prepare our, the people, and I realize you can't uh, expect like, you know, 400 members of a current club to all sign up to do the cultural competency training or the unconscious bias training, but at least start with your staff. And the other thing is, you know, clubs and provincial sport organizations and uh, national sport organizations say that, you know, we have policies in place and we have, you know, we've done a, a review of our policies from a DEI lens. Who is doing that review? If it was the same five, I'm sorry, white guys at the table, right. <laughs> straight white guys at the table who are doing the review, who who originally uh, wrote the policy, then you're not really getting a diverse perspective to know if that policy actually, like, wh- where is the DEI lens coming from? Right. So, you know, do saying that you did that review, and then when something actually happens in the club, like, say somebody has a an insult hurled at them or, you know, somebody in a position of authority shoots them like a really nasty email or something. How do you deal with it? 
right? Like, do you actually deal with it or do you, you know, now it's a human, it's a human resources issue and we have to be silent on it and we have to like, you know, sweep that under the rug and we'll deal with it. And how do we know if you actually dealt with it? And how do you know, like, how am I going to be safe moving forward if, if I don't know if you dealt with it, how you dealt with it, you know, if it was dealt with, if that person was reprimanded. So all these things that we, sometimes we say that we do because we sort of have to do them. And I guess my, my caution is don't be performative. So if you want to invite people into the club, do all this legwork ahead of time, do some training, do some education, make sure that is ongoing. Actually, uh, when somebody voices a concern, actually listen and investigate and do something about it rather than sweeping it under the rug. And when once you have all these things in place, and I'm not going to say, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect if you've done all this, but at least you've done a little bit of legwork, then, you know, you can, and you've talked to members of different communities to try to come in and and, and see how they feel about in, in this space, then go out and actively pursue some uh, membership. So I think we we are all quick to jump and just say like, I need to get black and brown faces in my club because that's what I'm told I'm supposed to do. But is that going to be in the long run, the best for your facility, the best for those people who are inviting in? Like it can go really great or it can go really badly if, if it's, you know, if, if we don't, uh, like if we don't put some thought into it. But then if you do make a mistake, say you made a mistake and acknowledge right. it, right? Like don't, you know, people walk in with backs up and they're all defensive and, you know, the, if I dare say white fragility, um, that, you know, they're, you know, well, that's like, we can't, we can't go there. Um, I know one person um, I was having a conversation with said, you know, we were talking about uh, DEI and they, and they said, you know, but when people play the race card, that's where I draw the line. I was like, like, what do you mean by play the race card? Right. So if someone feels like they were um, insulted or the interaction did have racial like overtones, undertones, whatever, if they had that feeling, they had that feeling. Right. You you can't sit there and say that you can't feel that way because now you're like you're bringing up something um, about race. People are uncomfortable talking about race. But you know what? Those of us who look like this and live like this, this is life all the time, right? So just because somebody else is uncomfortable talking about it and they feel like, well, if you bring up race, then now, like if they were just rude to you, that's fine. But if you bring up the race, now now it's something that, you know, you've crossed the line. Well, I think that person needs a little bit of training and education as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if instead of having your backup, just say, you know what? Oops, like, you know, right. I just learned something new. And in this situation, that person did say, well, you know, sorry, I, that's totally not the perspective that I would have taken it from. But after this conversation with you, I have a different perspective and, and they were ready to to learn. So if if you own up to when you um, make a mistake or say something in error, and, um, most people are going to be pretty forgiving. It's when you put your back up and then throw it back on the, the, the racialized or marginalized yeah. person that it's like somehow their fault. That's where, that's where we have a problem. That's where I have a problem with you too. And then I will call you out. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and I guess sort of the, the question that comes out of that is at that symposium in the spring, did you get that sense from the organizers in terms of why the event was taking place? Because you mentioned that there was a group and it hasn't met for a year. 
and then they have the symposium this spring, you know, how much of that experience was, do you think, a, a genuine effort on Curling Canada's part to move ahead with these issues compared to potentially, as you as you mentioned, like the idea of tokenism or, or anything like that? Like I, I, all the reports that I've seen out of it, like in the moment was that it was good discussions and, and a positive experience. But I don't know what the follow up has been. Just again, to back things up, credit, I have to give credit where credit is due. The diversity, equity, inclusion part of that symposium was primarily organized by Dr. Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo, um, Dr. Richard Norman, Dr. Simon Barrick. Um, so it had a very strong academic component. And th- that conference was, uh, you know, the, I think the brainchild of um, Dr. Heather Mayer prior to the pandemic and prior to the murder of George Floyd. So this is something that, you know, she's she's been doing in her research for years. Dr. Norman's been doing in his research as well. So this is something that they just wanted. And of course, like um, Danny Lamoureux from Curling Canada was very open to, to having this. But I think things really, had we had this symposium in May of 2020 prior to George Floyd's murder, I think it might have been a lot different in terms of the reception that clubs or, you know, attendees had, or like how they, how they took it, how they perceived it, how many people actually showed up. So now um, having it when we did this year, I think uh, definitely there were, there's more eyes on it. There's more, um, there's a little bit more knowledge because there have been uh, a lot of discussions in the sport. Um, So those two days were great. I came away with so much learning um, myself from from the different panelists from the different speakers follow-up so I'm not sure exactly so if I was a, you know so Cataractway and I are like we're working like I'm part of Cataractway we're working together to develop our, our our programming and stuff so if if I was a member at another club I'm not sure if I would have enough confidence knowledge ability to you know, start something this year. Hopefully people, I know, I know different clubs have been reaching out to, um, to us or to Aaron or, um, to United We Curl, um, to try to develop things, but I'm not sure if that, well, I know, I guess maybe it's safer to say, I'm not sure <laughs> if that guidance is coming from anywhere at Curling Canada though. So, and I realize Curling Canada, I realize our curling in this country is a complicated web of you know hierarchy and the provincial sport organizations and curling canada feeling like they have no real power with uh, member associations or with clubs but who do people go to if they have questions right now right and what what came like what follow-up came after after the session so yes all the sessions the, the recordings came out they were great people's presentations came out so you have some material but if i have like a real question um, who am I supposed to ask, right? How, um, what, do I have any additional funding for training for my staff or for club members who are interested, right? Like there's no, there's none of that happening um, that I can see. And, you know, I, I feel like I have my pulse on things, but I, you know, I'm not <laughs> the all-knowing in the sport of curling and, and diversity, equity, inclusion. But I just feel like, you know, there, if, you know, if a club needed 
times are tough. People are just trying to get, you know, after COVID, they're trying to just get their clubs up back up and running. And I realizes I realize that, you know, finances are important and, you know, they're trying to, if they had equipment issues, whatever, they're trying to focus their money on in that. But if this is truly something that the sport of curling feels is important, then we need to reallocate some resources to it, whether they are human resources or they are um, other resources like financial resources. You know, if Sport Canada would tie funding to to this type of work, people would be integrating it into everything they do all the time. Yeah, there has to be a whole shift in the way the way we think about diversity and and inclusion in sport in general, and and you know definitely in curling. And it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to allocate resources to it. And I don't feel like the resource allocation has been there. So like even in the symposium, and don't get me wrong, the symposium was great. I'm glad we had the conversation. But as you said, like what what's happening after that? There have been, you know, Curl, Curl in Canada and, you know, I'm living in Ontario. So, um, you know, Curl on have like great hashtags, like everyone plays and curling is for everyone. But what substance comes behind those those hashtags? And is that actually where the current state of um, being in the sport or is that where you want to be? Because if it's where you want to be, that's fine, but say it. So don't put up the ad. So I'm sorry, like I was a little bit triggered by the Curling Canada ad because nowhere in that ad did it say that we're not quite there yet, but we're working really hard, right? So it's great to have this vision as to where you want to be, but it's also important to be realistic as to where you are right now. Because otherwise it's sort of false advertising to somebody who wants to sign their kid up. Because fine, that commercial, the Curling Canada commercial had like all, or it's not just their kids, some adult who wants to sign up. Curling Canada commercial had like, was very diverse. But if you walk into, even if you walk into Cataraqui, right? Like one of my kids moved out of Kingston. So like there's me, one of my kids, (laughs) maybe like a couple other people. I can probably count on like one hand, maybe a couple fingers on the other hand. So it's, 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 it doesn't look like that. Like maybe places in, you know, the GTA, it's, it's a little bit better, but let's just be honest about where we are right now. Right. And if and if you're not honest about it, I don't think you can really tackle the problem. So like in in Ontario as well, you know, there was this whole diversity inclusion strategy that was put out. And, um, you know, there's like there's a strategic plan for a four year strategic plan. And there's like whole unveiling and stuff like who developed that plan, who was at the table, because for like a couple months, there was an there was a diversity and inclusion panel that I was part of, but that was like banded very abruptly. Yeah. Then this, this plan just sort of came out. So who was at the table developing this plan and this plan, when you read it, what are the actual um, tangible things that clubs can do to um, increase uh, inclusion or diversity at, at their level? Right. So the organizations provincially and nationally are trying to do stuff and they know that they have to do stuff and they feel like they have to do stuff. But if you're just doing it because you feel like you have to and not because you really believe it and you really want to, I don't think we're going to see real change coming from those organizations. So whether it's the leadership in those organizations or it's the the people uh, who are um, tasked to do this work or if it's just they don't have enough funding in their organizations. And I, I, and I totally understand that the, you know, both those organizations, for instance, are, are quite small. Then I look at curling Alberta and they just have a, a different, it seems like a different amount of dedication and genuine interest in, 
in diversity and inclusion. So yeah, yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and other than I don't think we're doing enough. Sure. Um, like I didn't say enough already. Yeah. I don't think well, we're doing enough. And I think there needs to be stronger leadership and um, resource allocation. Yeah. And and one of the things that I, I wonder about when I think of this too is for Curling Canada, for the provincial associations, a lot of their focus seems to be on that elite level, especially for Curling Canada, where so much of the funding comes from world championships, from Olympics, and then just internally their their revenue events are the Briar and the Scotties and whatever world championship is held in Canada. So their focus is on those events and having Canadian teams win medals. And it's hard to say to them, you have to have the diversity inclusion at that highest level when the development of those players has to start in clubs. And so it seems like there's a disconnect between those two things where they're totally focused on winning gold medals, winning medals, and yet to ensure that there's a, a diverse group of individuals who are competing for those gold medals coming out of Canada, it has to start at the grassroots level. And that the investment doesn't seem to be going towards the grassroots level in incredibly meaningful ways so that if we look ahead 10, 15, 20 years, those kids who are doing Little Rock programs now would be at that championship level. Like that, that needs to really take place in order for us to see that reflected on our screens when we turn on an event. And that's a long-term project that, as you're talking about, doesn't seem to be there yet. Yeah, definitely. Like everything usually in life comes down to money, right? You're right. Yeah. So if, if money from, from for Curling Canada is coming from these events, then they need to keep investing in that. But then I also often hear that if we don't diversify curling and if we don't bring in more people of diverse backgrounds into yeah. curling, this sport is going to die, right? So if that is also one of the big issues in the sport, that we don't want the sport to, go, to, to, to die, then you need to look at, like I was saying, the resource allocation. So if they're, if they're not, the Curling Canada is not going to take some money and, and spend it <laughs> at grassroots level for development. And I mean, again, they do have the curl, the the, um, you know, for love curling, uh, or like they do have the foundation money. There's, I don't totally agree with how all that money is being doled out, but that's for another podcast. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, there's ways that you, there's things that you could do, right? There's, if you really, if you want to nurture kids at a competitive level, because that's where you feel like your revenue, revenue streams are, then start a program for nurture. So once, you know, kids who are coming out of the program, like I, I have a cat, um, maybe then you identify a few kids from around, different parts of the province or different parts of the country and you um, nurture them. Like in Ontario, the Ontario Curling Council started this, um, I'm going to mess up the name of it, but basically they, it's sort of, it was like a select team um, that they have this year and, you know, kids tried out for this. And so they're receiving different, um, they're receiving funding and coaching and all this. So those kids are going to get a lot of attention and, and um, funds uh, and, and great coaching, right? So you could, if you wanted to, you could do the same thing, but say we're going to pick from a, a different pool of kids or, or, you know, and I'm not saying all four kids need to be racialized, but you can say, look, for, for this team, we need to have, you know, we need to have like at least like half the team, if we're going to provide funding, needs to um, 
uh, be from uh, diverse backgrounds. I mean, people are going to say tokenism. People are saying you didn't deserve the money. People are going to say all whatever they want. The haters are going to hate. <laughs> but if you want to develop the sport, we need to see people um, who look like us, you know, in the sport at the higher levels to attract younger kids. Like Nazim Kadri bringing the cup uh, on Saturday to the London Muslim Mosque. Like my nephew was there, you know, my cousins were there. Like that's a huge deal, right? And for for people in our community to see some, you know, somebody that looks like them win the cup, that's that's huge. So if we don't have that in curling right now and we're not even trying to develop it, we're going to continue to have this problem. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to say all the right things. So we're going to say it's important to us. But then if we don't actually put that into action, it doesn't really mean a lot in the end. Right. right? And I don't want to negate all the good stuff that people are doing. But I, you know, I just feel like there needs to be a more integrated approach to this. And right now it's like, like, you know, like you're saying, like competitive curling and what we see on TV is over here. And then, you know, and if there happen to be a few people at that level, great. You know, there are, uh, you know, there is Indigenous representation. Uh, United We Curl member, Brittany Tran, shout out. She's, she's at, you know, that level. But, you know, there's there's a few people, again, you can count on one hand, probably, that uh, between the cooies and, you know, that that are at that level. So if we don't help bring people to that level by providing extra resources and funding and training, um, to nurture them to get to that level, you're not you're not going to have that, right? So I just remember, yeah. You, yeah, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Rudy Remcharin from yeah, yeah with Kevin Martin, from, yeah, <laughs> right. So to see yeah. the brown guy yeah. win like a briar was like so exciting <laughs> for um, for people in the south, like in the in my community, right? So yeah. like, and you know that we we need that. Um, and and we need role models, but to get there, yeah, we need to we need to do a little bit of investment, and you need to change the way we think, right? And we need to change the way we approach this, and we need to have it integrated, like up and down, you know, right. up and down yeah. and across, like all over. <laughs> we need to have it integrated. Yeah, and and I think to the under eighteen from last year, and I forget where it was held. I believe it was in Ontario, but I, I watched some of the streaming of it. It seemed like that was a, a more diverse group than some other national championships I've watched uh, at that level. But then the question is to, for those kids who are, who are participating there, what supports are there when they get to the under 20 level? And then the big one, of course, is that transition from the under 20 into men's and women's play, uh, which is, is where we lose a lot of players anyway. Uh, and then in particular, can we support uh individuals who otherwise have not gotten support uh, previously. And and those are sort of those programs. So I, I don't know how optimistic uh, you are about things moving forward. And I don't want to create a binary of like optimism versus pessimism, because <laughs> uh, that, that's certainly not fair. Uh, but I, I guess okay. just sort of moving forward uh, as a curling community, you, you've touched on it already a little bit, but what are some things that we can do in our respective uh, individual communities uh, across the country or internationally for anybody who's listening to just ensure that uh, everybody who comes is welcome and we're creating a, a space where everybody can come and really enjoy what is a fun sport. Like it's, you know, the strategy on ice, like really what can be better than that? Like, Absolutely. you know, how, how can we make it so that everyone continue to work towards uh, a, an increasingly 
inclusive, welcoming environment. So before we get to that, I just want to shout out to, yes, the U18, especially in Ontario, U18, U21. Um, and because I've coached boys, mostly the uh, boys teams, I mean, the, the U20 um, winning skip was um, Asian, like Landon Rooney, for, I think for the first, maybe that's the first time ever in Canada. I'm not sure. But, and some of the other kids that were at nationals at U18 level have either played with or competed against my kids. So, you know, definitely, um, you know, there's, there's definitely movement there, which is great to see. And we should say too, not sorry, sorry to interrupt, but Landon too gets the invite or got the invite, I believe, uh, to that points bet spiel as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so he'll is, be there with his amazing. team, which is, will be cool to see. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, um, what we can do. So I guess, uh, if I were to break it down, I guess start building relationships in your community. Each club is probably going to need a champion who prioritizes this and who who takes the lead on this um, at their club. So if that champion uh, can start working towards um, with their committee, hopefully they don't have to do it on their own, <laughs> yeah. to uh, build relationships within the community. I will say that it's if you do have an existing uh, membership that is from a racialized or marginalized community, you can ask them to participate in that outreach, but don't expect them to do all the work for you. Like definitely, you know, as somebody from those communities, I want to my voice to be heard and to have a seat at the table and I'm happy to help. Not everybody wants that or um, wants that burden because it is, it can be uh, it can be time consuming. It can, it can take a toll on you um, emotionally as well. So uh, d- start developing those um, relationships and, and bonds within the community. Um, just one thing I want to just mention uh, as part of this too is, you know, a lot of times if we're going to ask uh, racialized and marginalized people within our clubs or within the sport to um, basically be our consultants, then pay them as consultants. You know, someone is coming in to look at your ice or rocks or, um, you know, whatever at at the club, they'd be paid for their work, right? And so a lot of people in this space of diversity, equity, inclusion are racialized and marginalized people that are doing this work who are not and are not getting paid. But we find somehow find the money when it comes to other things. So I just want to throw that out there. So have, have a champion at your club um, and then do some outreach, do some internal work. So there are a lot of um, great webinars, podcasts, books, you know, things that you can educate yourself with. Um, Global Initiative for GI and Curling has done a, a bunch of webinars. Curler Outreach Program has done some webinars about um, inclusivity as well. Um, so there's, you know, different, uh, those, and those are all curling specific, um, but there's just general education that you can do just so you feel a little bit more comfortable talking about things and feel like you can um, prepare your environment a little bit better, right, for, for people to come in. And then, you know, do the, once you've built some relationships with the community, then you can do that targeted outreach um, and just say like, hey, we're having this thing, like maybe go to to the, the communities um, and, and invite them in. Open up your curling facility to the neighborhood more. So it just shouldn't be for like just for curling. Um, I think in one of the pieces that Donovan Bennett did, he was talking about how it's, you know, it's like the, the neighborhood hub and it can be more of that. 
but it's like which neighbors feel comfortable enough to yeah. even come in. So like if if there's a in the summer, if if there's hall rental, maybe you need to actually go out to like different communities and say like, hey, like, you know, everybody's welcome for this hall rental. Like anybody can use it. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a curler or a golfer or whatever. Anybody can use it. So just even if, if people are coming in for non curling things to begin with, then maybe they just might have a, a better feel for the um, the facility. Yeah, so uh, um, education, outreach, and then yeah, target outreach. Make sure your f- policies and your review of policies actually mean something, and are and and if something bad does happen, that you actually address it, and you then revisit policies and review because you may think it's great, but when something actually happens, it may not be good enough. Be open-minded, be aware of what's happening in different communities. I think that was one of my closing points at the symposium, right? Like care when something happens in the community. So, you know, when, when George Floyd was murdered, there weren't a lot of, Goldline came out with a statement. I don't think curling can, like most places, most organizations in the sport of curling, most teams in curling even didn't come out and say something, right? When something that big is happening in the community and you don't even acknowledge that it's happening and then tomorrow you go to the, you know, the uh, Caribbean uh, Cultural Center and say, hey, come curl. Well, what do you think people are going to like? What do you think is going to happen? Like when, you know, the murders happen in London, like radio silence from the curling community. But when like and all these are tragedies in and I'm not saying one has more weight over another, but like when the hockey players were killed in the bus accident in uh, Saskatchewan, I believe it was Saskatchewan. Yeah. The Humboldt um, crash. Yeah. Yeah. Humboldt. Everybody had, you know, the, the curling community was out with, you know, on their social media. Um, the curling organizations were out on their social media. I'm just saying that there's sometimes a, uh, pick and choose as to what we recognize as a curling community and what we don't. And what we do choose to recognize is often for the, the dominant culture and not for, um, for the, the diverse communities that you're trying to, trying to welcome. So uh, if you're trying to be more welcoming, then acknowledge different holidays and festivals, right? Like, you know, even if it's just a tweet or if you're, if you're doing something for St. Patty's day, but then maybe there's um, some other holiday that you could be recognizing. Even if you don't have that membership right now and you want to grow that membership, have an event, invite people in from that, that community. Right. So I think it's just people really thinking about, um, about being inclusive. Like it has to be all the time. It's not just bring a few people in and teach them how to curl. It's like, what can we as a community be doing overall and part of that is understanding social justice issues and being involved in, in those in the community, right? That's how you meet people from different communities when you actually get involved yeah. in these in these things, right? Like I'm part of an anti-racism working group. There's people from all sorts of different communities in that working group with the city, right? But if you stick to just the, the current curling community and that's your whole circle, and I will be quite honest, in the winter, that is pretty much my whole circle. <laughs> um, but, uh, but right, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to meet other people, you're not going to develop that comfort, because people are, you know, if you've never talked to a Muslim woman wearing a hijab before, you may not feel comfortable talking to me. But after you talk to me, you can realize that we can have a conversation for an hour. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. and it's really easy, right? So Absolutely. until you 
reach out and make that effort, right? You can't just expect the people in the racialized and marginalized communities to be making all the effort. You, we yeah. as a curling community need to make that effort as well. Absolutely. Uh, very, very well said. I know you have to run uh, to another meeting. So uh, Sabina Islam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. So there you have it. My chat with Sabina Islam, of course, thank her for her time. She was uh, very generous, actually kind of went over uh, what I said I would uh, I would take uh, in terms of the time with her. Uh, so very appreciative of her uh, joining us in with her patience with me on a, a scheduling issue that we had before we recorded and then uh, taking a little more time uh, than we had agreed to. Uh, so Scott, uh, I, I've uh, really enjoyed hearing from Sabina uh, having the chance to talk to her there, uh, some of the stuff that she's read. Uh, you'd met her before, as we talked about off the top. Uh, just, uh, I, I think, somebody who has a lot uh, to contribute, obviously, and to somebody who is, in my mind, certainly emerged as one of the great leaders in our sport. Yeah, always nice to hear, uh, hear from Sabina and hear uh, what she's got to say about this diversity and inclusion uh, initiative. Curling Canada, of course, has resources available on the website, but it's always nice to hear from somebody who's actually doing the work uh, and and sort of on the ground with respect to the the initiative. Great ambassador for the sport, Sabina, too. Great voice to have in our community. And I uh, really enjoyed your chat. Well, thank you. And, and as you said, uh, check the show notes below. Uh, we'll link to some of the resources uh, that Sabina talked about and uh, make sure that everybody has access to all that wonderful material uh, that has come out. And uh, as always, if you want to reach out to us with uh, ideas on things that we can do to further the cause of diversity inclusion in the sport, or if there's things that we can promote or just uh, whatever, please do reach out to us. Uh, this is certainly going to remain uh, an important priority for us here on the show. So with that, we thank you for listening. And if you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, the ratings, comments, all that stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. You can always, of course, head on over to gameofstonespod.com. All of our past episodes are there. Plus a link to the merch with all proceeds going to Food Banks Canada, the Sandra Schmirler Foundation. We match those. And if you want to reach out, let us know what you want to hear on the show. It is Game of Stones podcast at gmail.com, Twitter and Instagram at Game of Stones pod, Game of Stones podcast on Facebook. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. Scott, you know, sometimes I wonder. How is it that we can be in September and I feel like we're in the middle of the season somehow, uh, even though we haven't started to play? Yeah, maybe, you know, I'm looking out the window. There's this tree is just starting to turn. Uh, we had some crisp, cool evenings. Yeah. And the sun is setting earlier and earlier. Maybe, uh, yeah. maybe that's where you're getting it from. I don't know. Maybe. I know. I'll tell you though, fall is my favorite season, like by far. Uh, it's uh -oh. not even close. It's every, everybody's favorite season. Yeah. Anybody that says otherwise is lying or they're dumb. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just the crunch kidding. of just the leaves, uh, the, especially here in Ottawa, uh, where I live, a lot of trees along the canal, right behind Parliament Hill. Uh, sort of the backside of the hill is just mm -hmm. all trees. It's just a spectacular uh, view in the fall. It's just uh, just a wonderful time of year uh, that uh, transitions 
into not a wonderful time of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, Sean. And you know what else it means is that uh, fantasy football has started. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I will say, I don't think it's going well so far, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, and maybe provide updates if people are interested, which yeah. no one is. <laughs> well, uh, we wish you the best of luck, Scott. We wish everybody the best of luck out there uh, with their fantasy stuff. Uh, and uh, happy start to the curling season for all of you who are going to be getting started in the next little while. Uh, we'll be mm-hmm. along the ride with you as we get set to play ourselves. So uh, until we talk again next week, Thanks for listening and keep those brooms on the ice. Don't dump that intern. Make the final.